Amen. Well, good morning, Calvary. Um, before I start, I got to say I love these speakers. I love especially that subwoofer. Did you hear the bass in there? Man. I guess some credit has to go to Isabelle too for playing it, but yeah, I, I like this. I like this sound. Uh, this morning, we're going to turn our attention to Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. And I'm actually going to read it for you, and then we're going to have a word of prayer. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And Paul says there, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Our great God, we just come to you asking you to show us what it means to be a living sacrifice. Show us, God, how to be well-pleasing to you, how to know your will. Show us how to use the gifts that you've given us for your glory and the building up of your kingdom. I pray, God, that you would help us all to be motivated by the mercies of God and to live lives that are solely focused on pleasing you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing we see here is this first word that we see a lot, especially in Paul's writings, therefore. The therefore lets us know that what he is about to say is a direct result of what he's already said. He uses therefore often to make a connection between what he has taught out as far as doctrine and how we are to live in response to that. So in the book of Romans, he gives them 11 chapters of teaching and then says, okay, now this is what you're to do with it. But this pattern, of course, is not just in Romans, but in Galatians, Galatians 5.1, he uses this, this therefore. Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then he goes on to talk about what the Christian life will look. And we get this famous passage about um, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and being filled with the spirit and what it actually means to, to live out a spirit-filled life. And then again in Ephesians 4.1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, 
implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then for the next three chapters, we learn what that worthy walk looks like. Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Philippians 2.1 Therefore, if there be any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, and then he goes on and tells us how to live, especially in a direct context, uh, being humble and looking at Christ as our example of humility. And then we come to our passage today. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So he's urging us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice because of the theology that he already taught in the first 11 chapters. Now, one thing has to be pointed out here. I think it's important. We see who he's talking to. He's not just talking to random people walking down Main Street in Rome. He says, brethren. He is talking to believers. He is talking to those whose souls have already been submitted to God. Those who already belong to God. So there's a few things that we need to keep in mind with this. Uh, Romans 8.8, 8, a few chapters before, you don't need to turn there. He says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Ephesians 2.1 lets us know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's not that God sees humanity as neutral, and we get this picture, you know, that statue of justice. You know, there's a woman who's blindfolded, and she has a scale, and, you know, the, the idea is that there's evidence stacked on of guilt and evidence of innocence, and God kind of weighs it out and says, okay, they have some good deeds here, and then, oh, there's a bad deed, the scale's coming this way, oh, there's a couple really good deeds here. Oh, man, look what they did here, and just break, broke the scale. That's not what God is doing. God is not looking at our lives and saying, hmm, am I pleased with this person or not? Let me just watch what they do. If they feed the homeless enough, I'll be pleased with them, no matter what they do in their marriage. That's not what God is saying. If you read throughout these first 11 chapters, Paul is very clear in what one must do to get right with God. Paul is very clear of not only the benefits that come from salvation, but what it actually takes And the fact that we have no control, that we're not able to give enough gifts to God, we're not able to do enough things to please God on our own. In Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, he's actually quoting uh, from a few places in the Old Testament. Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So he makes it clear throughout the book of Romans and all of his other writings, that this isn't just an open call for all of humanity to come and do a bunch of good things so we can all please God and then we can party in heaven later. So as we go through this passage, understand that if you've not given your life to Christ, none of these things will matter. None doing, you can do all of these things listed here and you can go on through the other chapters in Romans and do all these things going forward. But if you have not submitted your hearts and your lives to the truth of everything he preached before, 
that the only way to God is through Christ, then doing all this stuff is meaningless. So that's the first thing that needs to be set up. And he uses that term brethren to let us know that he's only addressing believers here. That you have to make this first step. You can't be an acceptable sacrifice unless you've been justified, unless you've been cleansed. He says here, therefore I urge you. And the word urge, I think, will be a familiar word to us. It's parakaleo in the Greek. And it carries with it also the idea of comfort. And we know that in that passage where Christ promises to leave us with a comforter, uh, that the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, one who comes alongside to offer comfort and encouragement and other things as well, the Holy Spirit. But in, that, in this word, that's what's all wrapped up in it. So Paul uses that word. He doesn't say, um, it, it's a command, it's an imperative, but he doesn't, he doesn't use his apostolic authority in, in this section and says, look, you must, you have to do this or else. He comes alongside just almost as a counselor to encourage us to live a life that's going to please God. He urges us. In, in the King James, he says, I beseech you. I implore you. It's a, another way we could, this could be translated. And he tells us to do this in light of the mercies of God. The mercies of God. What are the mercies of God? Well, he spends 11 chapters unpacking the mercies of God. That's really what this letter to the Romans is. It's showing us all of the mercies of God that in salvation we now have. So a few of them. Love. In chapter 5, he says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. Chapter 8, we're told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Holy Spirit is another mercy of God. The Holy Spirit was given to us in chapter 5. In chapter 8, the Spirit of God dwells in you. The Spirit of God makes us sons and daughters. We're adopted into the family of God. Even though we didn't deserve it, God saw us and we became the object of his love. And we were given the Holy Spirit. We also have peace. Chapter 1, it says, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he says, there will be glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. In chapters 5 and 8, we learn about the peace of God that we have within us only because we are at peace with God and that we are no longer enemies of God. So we have peace, glory and honor. In chapter 2, we just read that. There will be glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good. Grace. I'm not even going to spend time giving you a bunch of references here. The book of Romans, you can't have the book of Romans without grace. Chapters 1, 3, 5, 6. Even though the word isn't mentioned in chapter 8, I dare you to read chapter 8 and not think about God's grace. There's lots more that just are mentioned in the book of Romans. Faith, hope, kindness, patience, eternal life, freedom from sin, comfort, adoption, as we mentioned, forgiveness. Intercession from the Spirit, security, assurance, 
All of these things are the mercies of God. All of these things are what we now have as children of God. And what should be our response? Well, turn to Psalm 103. And no doubt the psalmist had these things in mind in this section. Psalm 103. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Just think about that. That's how we should be responding to the mercies of God. They should never get dull for us. We should never get bored thinking about what God has done for us. We should never get tired of serving or tired of meditating on the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Well, how is that possible? To forget none of his benefits. If anybody knows me, you know I am very, very forgetful. I have a task list that is filled with a bunch of stuff that normal people don't put on their task list because they remember them. But I forget them. And Amy's laughing because she saw my task list before and some of the things that I have to put on there. But how can we remember studying God's word, reading his word, speaking his word with other people, being encouraged by it, meditating on his word, praying his word, praying his mercies, his benefits. That's how we don't forget them. We keep them on our mind constantly. And listen to how he describes God. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. And then we can go on and on. We're actually going to stop there so we get out before 3 o'clock. But the benefits, the mercies of God should stir up this reaction in us. And let's Flip over to Psalm 116. It's a few chapters over. And look at another great reaction. And I love this because this is a question, and our text today answers this question. So just think about all those things that we just said, all those things that we get from God in salvation and sanctification. And in Psalm 116, verse 12, It says, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? What can I give him? What can I possibly give God? And you know what the answer is? Your life. Everything. Everything that makes up you. God here is calling for living sacrifices. He no longer wants the dead sacrifices. He no longer wants animals. Hebrews 10.4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We're not looking at making these physical sacrifices anymore. We're now giving ourselves up to God. And there's another distinction that needs to be made that I think uh, Dr. Ho has made before from this this section. Uh, Hey, you shouldn't have given me a mic if you don't want me to, to say that. 
A distinction is how God and us cooperate with each other in terms of salvation and sanctification. In salvation, there was very little cooperation. He calls us. He gives us the faith to believe, and we believe. We are objects of his love. And there's a fancy term that, you know, it's, it, our relationship and our salvation is monogistic. It's a one-sided relationship. God does the work. But our sanctification, we work together with God. It's, it's synergistic. We're working together with God in, for our sanctification. And many times we can confuse them. And when we start seeing that we need to do work, for God or he expects things of us, we begin to say, oh, wait, that's legalistic. No, that's sanctification. That's, that's us saying like the psalmist, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So the, the action on our part is to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And even the word itself will present is a term that's used in the Septuagint, which is just a Greek translation of the Old Testament, or ancient one. Um, and it referenced the Old Testament sacrifices when the priest would place the animal, place the sacrifice on the altar. It's the same word here, the way we should present our bodies. And there are two ways that we could present ourselves. Well, there are a lot more, but we're just going to look at two today. The first one is striving for holiness. Verses 1 and 2 again. Of We're back in Romans 12 now. Verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this idea of presenting our bodies, here's the way Paul put it in Romans 6, 13. It says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So then he's talking about us continually putting our sin to death and using our bodies to serve God. We are free from sin. So we no longer have to serve sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We have power over sin. God has given us victory. So we no longer have to sit under the bondage of sin. Before we came to God, we had to. We had no choice. We were sinners. It was in our nature, as Ephesians 2 once said. We had to sin. Now we have victory. We don't have to sin. Now we choose to sin. In light of the mercies of God, we are to stop using our bodies, using our members as instruments of sin. And now use them as instruments of righteousness. Become a living sacrifice. And the word holy means that we are now set apart for God. We are to pursue holiness in every area of life. We are to be set apart. Everything that we do, everything that we think, we are to be set apart. 
and it's not just this idea of I can't submit, I can't commit the big sins anymore. Being set apart means that we're not even in that area anymore. We're not even playing over here in the mud and expecting to not get dirty because somehow God is going to put some halo around us. That, that's not how we approach life. We now remove ourselves from the, that, the areas that cause constant sin and temptation, and we place ourselves over here. Almost. God is the one who shifts us and moves us. But we cooperate with that. We don't want to go kicking and screaming, right? We don't want to be holding on to this like, no, God, wait, but I love my sin. We don't want to do that, right? We want to put our sin to death. We want to hate our sin. The sin that nailed Christ to the cross, we want to hate that sin. So we're to be holy. We're to pursue holiness. We can't simply just add Christianity to the rest of our selfish, sinful lives and think that we're now pleasing God. We can't be the same way that we were before we came to Christ, but now we just do something different on Sunday mornings. That's not being submitted to God. That's not being a living sacrifice where everything else comes first before God. And what may be worse is when we think that mere duty is what makes us right before God. When we think that hey, I can live the way I want to live, but you know what? I'm in prayer meeting. I'm in Sunday school. I'm in home group. I come to church all the time. I come up and talk to the pastor afterwards. I tell the worship team they did a great job. I respond to every email that the church sends out. And we can go on and on at all these things. I check off the list of holiness. And those things are things that can help us in our walk. But those aren't, those things themselves aren't being holy. So understand both sides. We don't want to put aside the things that God has given us in order for us to grow. But we don't want to think that we can be spiritually dead inside, but do all these things and we're okay. Because on the outside, we look great. Because on the outside, we smile all the time. Or we're very helpful. But the inside, we're still dead. And here in verse 1, We are to be a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God. The word acceptable in the Greek literally means well-pleasing. But we can't be well-pleasing to God if we're not set apart to him. We've seen that. We have to yield ourselves up in every area. And I'll probably say this ten times while I'm up here because it's so important because we all have these little areas that we don't allow God to touch. Sometimes we just think it's hopeless. I've been this way 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I can't change now. This is who I am. This is my personality. I've always been a little spicy, a little saucy. You know, if somebody come in my face, I'm going to tell you what's up. That's not the attitude that we should have as Christians. And I know I've, I've threatened to punch a few throats in my, in my Christian walk. But, you know, we cannot have this, this mindset that says, God just made me like this. I just, I just have a temper. That's just who I am. No, God said, put off the sin. In one place, he says, don't be angry. And in another place, he says, hey, be angry, but don't sin. So I think I would just be really safe and just don't be angry. 
mean, when we talked about that passage in, in home group and also pastor preaching, you know, we looked at it and, and seeing that there are times that things will drive us to anger. Sin will drive us to anger. But our response to anger is, not, is to not sin. Even if sin is the cause of the anger, the response is not sin. And I think anger is a good one because we all have anger. Just because you may have never been in a fight in your life, we all have anger. And we all react to it differently. Some of us don't have outbursts, but I think that's, that's the sin that everyone carries. And we, especially in this culture, we think we can just kind of get away with it. Because the world tells us we can. They tell us sometimes it's a good quality to have. That's how you get what you want, right? Just keep being contentious, keep being angry, keep complaining, and the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Right? And the only way to, to get respect is to demand it. And we have these lessons from when we're early on in life, and then we come to Christ, and then we just keep living that way and say, but I go to church on Sunday, so it's okay. doesn't matter that I curse this person out or cut me off. I, I'm, I'm coming from church, so it's okay. So we need to think about this in every area, and there are many, uh, our addictions, and some of us don't look at them as addictions because they may not be illegal substances that we're addicted to. But there are things that consume our minds even more than Christ. There are things that consume our minds so much that we can't wait to get it again. We can't wait to see it again. We can't wait to do it again. And we don't feel that way about coming to the word of God. And we'll put those things above our service. Whatever it is, our talents, our loneliness, our cultures, our political affiliations. God wants every part of our lives up on that altar. We are to be living sacrifices. And I I love this part. Paul says, it is your spiritual service of worship. That word for spiritual, some may have it translated as reasonable, depending on what uh, version of the Bible you're using. The word in the Greek is logikos. It's where we get the term logical. The logical, reasonable, sensible response to the mercies of God is to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. So you get that? It's the logical thing to do as a Christian, one who has been bought by the blood of Christ. The logical, reasonable thing to do is to submit yourselves as a living sacrifice. So you know what it means if you're not doing that? You're being unreasonable and illogical. If we look in the book of Proverbs, we can say you're being foolish by not submitting yourselves to God in every area. Then he talks about how to do this. You know, it's one thing to to say that. Those Those are kind of concepts. You know, submit your life to God. Put, become a living sacrifice. Put yourself, what does that look like day to day? What does it look like when I'm in work and I'm in this meeting and I really don't want to be in because I'm hearing the same thing for the 10th time that we're not going to act on? What does it mean then to be a living sacrifice? Well, in verse 2, Paul says, and do not be conformed to this world. That's the first thing he says. The world here is talking about age, the system of this world. We cannot let non-biblical views 
shape our thinking on any issue, whether it be about parenting or how to handle conflicts or even what to do with your life. You cannot let the thinking of the world system, which hates God, which is set up to tear down everything associated with Christ. We cannot let that system control the way that we think. And so he says, do not be conformed. So if we're no longer allowing the world to form and shape our thinking, what will? Well, Paul anticipates that and he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's not merely refusing to conform to the world because just because something isn't found in the Bible doesn't mean it doesn't have any use. Just because you find a tip on how to be more productive or a way to express love to your, to your wife that doesn't come from the Bible, it doesn't mean, oh, this is garbage, this is trash. It wasn't found in this book. So we don't want to take that attitude just to throw things out just for for the sake of throwing them out and thinking that's, that's all we have to do. We have to use wisdom. But the real key is no longer letting the world control your thinking and now having your mind renewed. The idea of, of renewing your mind talks about this inward renewal. Sometimes this word, the Greek word for, for renewing, was used in terms of renovating. So, and I've mentioned before that sometimes I find myself hogtied to a chair in my bedroom and forced to watch HGTV where they have a bunch of shows about renovation. And, you know, while I'm trying to, like, break free and try to see if I can, like, get some friction to kind of cut the rope, Um, and I'm watching these shows, you know, I see the amount of work that's done in the first phase, which is demolition. And they just rip these houses apart. I mean, they tear a room apart. You don't have anything but studs left. And that's what needs to happen in our mind. We need to tear apart everything that we built our thinking on when we come to Christ. And it doesn't end. This is a a constant thing. These are present tense uh, verbs here. The presenting and the renewing, these are things that are done over and over and over, daily, hourly, minute by minute if we have to. And we're constantly having this, this renewal happening on the inside so that we can be transformed on the outside. In a word, transform or transformation is where we get our word metamorphosis. So that's what happens to us because of what's happening on the inside. Philippians 2, 12, uh, the last part of the verse puts it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God has already put in. Your salvation was done. It's a, it's a fact in the past. But every day our salvation is, is working out. We're working out what God has put in. We're being renewed on the inside, and it's transforming who we are on the outside. And of course, this renewal of the mind happens as we read God's word, we study God's word, we meditate on it, and the Holy Spirit uses that to change our thinking, to change our behaviors, to change our reactions. So what's the result of conforming or refusing to conform and then having our minds renewed? Towards the end of verse 2, he says, so that you may prove 
what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the idea here behind prove is not that someone comes along and says, I don't think that's God's will, prove it. It's the idea of experiencing or demonstrating what God's will is. So do you want to know God's will? Allow your thinking and values and your reactions to be renewed by God's word. That's how you know God's will. There are places in God's word where it says what his will is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is the first one that comes to mind. Sexual purity. Our sanctification in the area of, of sexual immorality. Being pulled away from that. Being saved from that sin. Given the power to overcome that sin. That's the will of God. That we be pure. So that's one thing that we know right off the bat. That's God's will. We don't have to search. I wonder what God's will is in this situation. And I'm doing this. God's will is to be pure. Says so. Says this is the will of God. But even when it doesn't say this is the will of God, we can know God's will in most situations when we're living this type of life. Paul then uses words that bring back the idea of living sacrifice because that's still the focus here. He says that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And and it brings our minds back to the sacrifices that were done in the Old Testament and the fact that the animals had to be without blemish and they had to be perfect. And there was other things about the animals that had to be done so much so that when it wasn't done in that way, God would send a message through the prophet that I don't want any more of your, of your sacrifices. Like in the book of Malachi, we saw that. You know, you're, you're giving diseased animals to God. God once was good and acceptable and perfect for our lives. So Paul came alongside us. He encouraged us. He urged us. He showed us the only logical, reasonable response to the mercies of God, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices by having our minds renewed, rejecting the world's thinking, and living out the will of God. So now he highlights another way that we are to respond to the mercies of God, and that's found in the rest of this passage, serving the body. Going on, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. So what I love here is because he's, he's really, you know, telling them, don't be arrogant, don't be cocky. And so even though he's appealing here to his apostolic authority now, As he moved on, he's still showing great humility. And he says, for through the grace given to me, and he's talking about the grace to become an apostle, the grace, through the grace given to him, he's able to make this command of everyone. He's able to speak what he's about to say through that grace that that God gave him, which is good. I would hate for him to sound pretty arrogant and puffed up when he's telling us to not be arrogant and puffed up about our gifts. So what, the way he does this, he highlights a few wrong attitudes we can have about the gifts first. And then he goes into the gifts. And if you just look, he spends very little time talking about the actual gifts. They don't matter that much in this passage. 
So he highlights a few things that um, would stop us from using our gifts effectively. The first one is pride. He says, don't think more highly of, of yourself than you ought to think. And we know that, especially those who have been in, in home group or anyone just has a memory with 1 Corinthians, um, you know that the Corinthian church had a problem with thinking too highly of themselves based on what gifts they had to the point that they will put others down who didn't have those gifts. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't think too highly of yourself. But then he quickly turns to something else that a lot of us do, even in the church. Don't think too lowly of yourself. Or don't have a, a false humility. He says you should be sober in your thinking. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has gifts, a combination of gifts. Everyone, every one of you. If you are a believer, you have a gift. So don't walk around saying, oh, I don't have a gift. I'm just one of these people that just show up and shuffle out of church and that's it. And I don't have anything to offer to the body of Christ. <sighs> and just say, that's, that's just not what we're supposed to do. Or when someone comes and says, wow, you did a great job. Oh, no, woe is me. Oh, it was so awful. I don't know how you got anything out of that. Oh, it was a train wreck. I tried eight times to get it right, and I just couldn't. No. God says, don't do that. Because God gave you the gift. So what are you actually saying? We're not talking about your abilities here. We're not talking about something that you just conjured up out of nowhere. We're talking about a gift that God has given you. And to sit and say, oh, no, this is terrible. I'm so bad at this. I'm awful. I can't do anything. Do you remember one of the few times that the, the Bible is very explicit in talking about God's anger to an individual? It was Moses. And what was, what was Moses doing? God said, I want you to go speak. No, I can't speak. And you know the story goes on and on with that. And no, I can't, you know, I stutter. I'm too slow, my tongue's swollen, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do anything, I can't speak to people. And finally, he just said, you know what, all right, look, I'm going to give you Aaron. Aaron going to speak for you, now what's your excuse? It actually says that the anger of the Lord was kindled. And because he just kept saying, no, what you're giving me isn't enough. Because I think so lowly of myself that I think the inefficiencies that I have and the, the terrible way of speaking and everything else that I'm going to put up as an excuse is more powerful than the gift that you're giving me. Almost saying, I'm bigger than you, God. You could give me something good, I'm going to mess it up anyway. That's, 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 that's what he was saying. And that's what we say. And we don't think of it that way. And Paul says, look, you need to have sound judgment. You need to be sober-minded when you think of, of your gifts. You need to really assess yourself. And we'll talk about... Um, at the very end, just a couple things you can do quickly to go through to say if you can, if you can have your gift or not, uh, if you can know what your gift is and whether that's really that important. And then he says, uh, as God has allotted, it's the very end of verse 3, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And here this faith refers to our capacity to use the gifts. 
the resources that we have, the abilities, not everyone is going to use them at the same level. He later on talks about that as grace that was given, the level of grace or measure of grace that was given. And so this isn't talking about faith in a general sense. It's not talking about even the spiritual gift of faith that we see in 1 Corinthians 12. It's not talking about the faith here. There are a couple more things that uh, he mentions. So there's kind of two that I think I lumped lump together. But going on to read verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Almost sounds like a riddle there, the way that he... He lays it out. But here are two things we see from that. Trying to be what you're not and being dissatisfied with what you are. So think about one thing, trying to be what you're not. I mean, now, musical ability really isn't a spiritual gift in a, in a sense. Um, but that would be like me trying to sing. You see me over there a lot. You've never seen me behind a mic. That's not my area. That's not my function. I don't belong behind the mic. I know I don't belong behind the only time you ever see me sing is when I'm surrounded by a bunch of good singers. Then you'll see me try to do something. But all in actually 1 Corinthians 12, and if any of you are, are part of the best, I'm sorry, the Somerset home group, then um, we'll actually be going over some of 1 Corinthians 12 today. Hey, I'm allowed to do commercials up here, right? We'll be going through some. We'll be going through the rest of actually First Corinthians twelve that we didn't do last week, um, and there he brings up the body analogy even more. And one thing in verse fifteen it says that the foot says, "Because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body." So the foot there, there there was actually two things that were highlighted in throughout the whole chapter. One was some body parts saying, "Hey." I can try to be this body part. And the one thing Paul says, hey, if, if everything was an eye, if your whole body was an eye, you wouldn't have any hearing. I mean, it sounds weird, but when you think about that, every part of our body has a function. Every part of the body of Christ has a function. But this foot here would say, because I'm not a hand, I am not part of the body. Because I don't have that particular gift, or I can't do what they do, that I'm worthless. And that's the assessment there. Just being dissatisfied with what you are, and that leads to not serving. Because you say, I'm, I'm nothing if I can't do it like this person. You know, we're all called to evangelize. And there are some people, there are some people here who do it better than I do. Most people probably do it better than I do. There are people here who... You know, I mean, Sharon and I talked about just how many people have given testimonies up here getting baptized who have said, yeah, I started hanging around the Sotos and Rebecca started talking to me about the gospel and then I just gave my life to God. And I just got saved. It's, it's a gift. Or someone like Paul or Amano or even Jenny who has this gift of just meeting someone and, just, and giving them the gospel and giving them exactly what they need to hear to start thinking about eternal things. You know, it's funny. We have, I think, at least four people here who, like, do hair and stuff like that. And all four of them are evangelists. 
So now you got it. If you want to evangelize, learn how to do hair. And you'll have people in your chair. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? They, they can't do it, especially, especially with Armano, because you could just, he could do someone quickly. I mean, the women, there's ways to kind of hide if you get like a bad haircut. You know, you could do something about it. But a man, nah, you got to sit there and listen. The clippers are right here. So if you want to evangelize, do hair. But because you, because, so for me, I can't look at Armando, I can't look at Paul, I can't look at Rebecca and say, you know what, I'm just not going to give people the gospel. I just can't do it. You know what, let me see if Paul busy and I can just bring him over to his house and do. Now, there may be times for that. There may be times where we have to bring in the heavy artillery. But, I'll, but we're supposed to evangelize as well. And that's why I love the downplay of the actual gifts because it's not about just you have this gift and this is the hole you're in. You have this gift, you're here. You have this gift. There's a wide array. <clears throat> and so he doesn't focus on this is how you detect this gift and this is exactly what you do with it. He says, if you have this gift, use it. If you have a gift, use it. And guess what? Everybody has a gift. So everybody should be using a gift or many gifts. So the last one, of course, that he points out is failing to use your gift at all. And that's how he closes this section. Verse uh, 6 says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Use your gift. Then he goes into detail, if prophecy, according to the proportion of faith. And he goes on from there. So the first thing we note about this gift is that it's different than the two lists, or sorry, the list, is different than the two lists of gifts that are given in 1 Corinthians 12. I mean, there's one that's an official list in verses 12 through 14, but then in verse 28, there's one that's a sort of list, more of gifts given to the church through people having the gifts. So it's kind of a double thing there. But we see two lists where people have been gifted to serve the body in 1 Corinthians 12. And all these lists are different. So that tells me that these lists are only representative of what God has given us. They're not exact things. And hey, if you don't have something on this list, 22 things right here, then you don't have a gift from God. No, it's everyone has different measures of different gifts and combinations of gifts. So the focus is not on finding the perfect match, but it's faithfully serving wherever you are, and it's done in response to the mercies of God. So prophecy is the first one here, found in the, towards the end of verse 6. And the word just means speaking forth. It's public proclamation of the word of God. It's preaching, no matter what the content is. In home group, we got specific in talking about the content and with some content that's used more than others. I will say that the word prophecy does not need to have an uh, understanding of only telling future events. Actually, most of the time when you see messages from the prophets, they may be telling future events, but it's not new revelation. So many of them were saying, look how sinful you are, Israel. And because of the covenant God made with you, this is what's going to happen to you. And some will go into great detail. But then every day they're out there preaching. And they're not bringing a new message every time. It's the proclamation of God's word. And if he says, if you have that gift, 
then you should use that gift according to the proportion of your faith. Now, faith there can, this time it can refer to the whole body of the Christian faith. It can refer to, you know, as Jude 3 says, the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. The, the, you know, the, the gospel and everything that comes out of it. Or it can refer to the capacity of the one who has the gift to use the gift, the measure of faith that they have, how much of this gift they've been given. Or it can even refer to their level and understanding of the faith. So someone who knows 10 verses of scripture and tries to preach should not be preaching on the deep things of God yet. And someone who is going to preach has to have a message that's consistent with the message of the Bible. So I think both of these um, understandings can be taken here. I don't think there's a need to really fight one over the other. I think both of these things can be understood here. The basic message is if you have the gift of preaching, then you need to preach. Service is the next one. He says, if service, you have the gift of service in his serving. That's how you're going to glorify God, right? And you're serving. And the word here is diakonia. It's where we get our word deacon from. So the verb originally meant to wait on tables. So there's been people hearing me say that recently just because I've been preparing for this sermon, and, you know, asked me to do something like, like, I can't wait on tables today. You know, I mean, that's, that's the, but that, that was the original sense. And then it took on this wider understanding to mean serving in, in, a, in a big sense. It's similar to the gift of helps mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. I think one, one of the differences, and maybe a slight difference, is that the, the gift of service may be a, a little bit more oriented toward organizing as well. And the gift of helps is just being there to lend a hand to a, a group, organization, or a person. But the gift of service may be more of organizing servants and serving alongside them. So if you have the gift of service, then get busy serving. It's that simple. He doesn't go into a big thing. Serve. Teaching. Or he who teaches in his teaching. So teaching is the ability to understand and explain in a systematic fashion God's word. So the main difference between this and prophecy would be that teaching may involve going through a kind of a formal system to bring someone along in a certain doctrine. Where preaching is just standing and proclaiming a message. There is teaching involved, but the methods may be different. So there's a quick note or two about teaching that I want to say. So the Bible is clear. All elders must have the gift of teaching. But not all will have the gift of prophecy, and they definitely won't all have it on the same level. I don't want to be graded against uh, Pastor Bobby or, you know, John MacArthur or someone like that and say, your sermon was okay, but it wasn't up to what I'm used to hearing every Sunday, you know, because we all have different gifts. So teaching is something said that, you, that you see an ha- elder has to be able to teach. But not every elder is going to be able to preach or preach at the same level. Also, many people have the gift of teaching, not just elders. 
Many people have the gift of teaching. I'm looking at people here and know that there are great teachers in here. Many people have the gift of, of teaching. So that isn't something that you can say, oh, well, you know what? I'm not an elder. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. All right, I'm out. They ain't talking to me. You know, we don't get to do that. Because, again, even if you don't have it at the same level as somebody else, you have the ability to teach. If you're a parent, you better have the ability to teach. Where else are your kids going to learn about God from? Who else is going to teach them about God in this society? You have the ability to teach. And those who have it have enough of a measure where they can affect you know, more than just one-on-one. You should be serving in it. But of course, a, a word of warning about that comes from James 3 where he says, don't rush to be a teacher. You know, not too many people should be teaching just because you, you know, taught one person how to hold a wrench one day doesn't mean that you can now, you know, lead Sunday school. You know, there's, there's different areas where you, can, where you can teach and be effective. But when you're coming to teach the word of God, it just says be careful because you'll face a, a stricter judgment as a teacher. And I hope I didn't just scare everybody away from teaching, but it's something that, that needs to be taken seriously. Exhortation. We get that Greek word again. I love Greek. I don't know if you can tell. I love Greek. But we get that same word, parakaleo, the, the idea of coming alongside and calling someone, encouraging them, counseling them, imploring them. Now, this one can be for correction or comfort. We looked before at the comfort part, but this word is actually used to talk about calling someone out on their sin and calling them into obedience. So either way, we want whoever has this gift or exhortation, you're calling someone to obedience to the scriptures. Whether it's someone who is weighed down by, by sin or someone who is weighed down by their life circumstances, you're coming alongside them and calling them to have their eyes fixed on Christ. Giving says, he who gives with liberality. Giving is a sharing of possessions or resources, even your time or energy, to meet the needs of others. And if you want to see a great example of that, just look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 6, with the Macedonian church, and you'll see that. Says so with liberality. This word means simplicity, or can mean simplicity. And it refers to having a single mind when you give. Don't give looking for thanks. Don't give looking for recognition and accolades or your name to be put up on some board. Give for the glory of God. Give because you see a need and you know you have what it takes to fill that need. And people who have the gift of giving, and in, in, in here, the word is actually intensified in the original language. And it really means abundantly giving or super giving. You have this ability to just give and give and not think about what you're losing when you give. All you're thinking about is God gave this to me. All that I have here belongs to God and he wants me to use what he's given me for this purpose. Giving. Leading. So he who leads with diligence. This word is used in scripture to refer to leading both in the home and in the church. And a good example of that is in Acts chapter 6 when uh, the apostles had to call, had to tell the congregation 
set up fine servants. And that's kind of the model that we have for, de- for deacons is using, using that scripture. Find people who can administer the distribution of food because we can't handle that. We're focused on prayer and studying and preaching the word of God. And we can't focus. That is the, the word earlier that we looked at for serving. They literally said we can't wait on tables and study and preach the word of God and pray for all of you. So find some men who have godly character and wisdom and get them to lead the distribution of the, of the food for those who uh, were in need. So wherever you're called to lead, do it with diligence, is what he says. Whether it's in your home or it's in the church, wherever you lead, do it with diligence. Showing mercy is how he ends. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is demonstrating kindness to those in need, and especially those who are easily cast aside. Those who usually don't have a big support system around them. And you see them, and immediately there's something in your heart that just says, I have to go to them. I have to help them. And we desperately need people like that in the church. There are so many hurting people who will smile in your face week after week until you get to know them and you come alongside them and you see their hurts. And those are the people who need people who can show mercy. The people who have catastrophic things happen in their life and and some of us will just say, I'm going to pray for you. And and we we may pray for them. It's one of the things on my to-do list is people I have to pray for still. But we, pray, we may even pray for them. But there are people who are moved to do so much more, whatever you need, whatever I could do for you, however I can comfort you, I would do that. So if you have the gift of mercy, please show mercy. There's two things about this gift. One, all believers are expected to show mercy. So again, this isn't a thing where it's like, nah, I don't have a gift. I took a test, and mercy was like down here, so I'm good. Everybody is to show mercy. Because everybody, I believe, has been given a measure of this gift. Anything that we have all been called to do, like evangelism, like showing love, like showing mercy, I believe that we've all been given a measure of that gift. The second thing is you have to use this gift with cheerfulness. Have you ever seen somebody try to show you mercy and they don't, they're not cheerful? I mean, it just feels like, it makes you feel like a burden, right? If someone comes and they try to be merciful and it's like, here, here you go. Uh, you good now? All right. You know, that's, that's not how we're to be. And we're not to be so burdened down with our own problems that we can't even smile, that we can't bring those people joy. And we have people like that here, but we need even more. You know, you want to be the type of person that people can't help to smile around. You know, no matter what type of day you're having, you go to certain people and it's just like you're brought out of that. And you need those type of people to be able to show mercy. The people who need mercy are, are truly hurting or in situations where they seem to have little help, little recourse. And by you serving them in that way and showing them mercy, you point them back to Christ. Not to yourself, but you point them to Christ. So as you can see, he didn't spend a lot of time on the gifts. He didn't go through and give us big definitions of them. He didn't, he just said, look, these are some of the gifts you may have. Serve. That's what he's focusing on. Serve. 
Why? Because you should be motivated by the mercies of God. And in putting these things together, there was a, there was a quote by um, Tom MacArthur. I don't even remember where I got it from. My, my, I don't know where. I'm not even going to say. But he said, prophecy proclaims the truth. Teaching systematizes the truth. And exhortation calls for a right response to the truth. And he said, and serving puts the truth into action. I think that's a great way to look at it. I would add that giving mobilizes the truth. All those things are great, but if you don't give of yourself and give resources, the truth kind of just stays there. And that leading guides the response to the truth, especially if you're leading in the home. And mercy helps others to focus on the truth rather than the temple needs. So real quick, I'm going to say five quick things. I mean quick, so... You know, if you want to write these down, y'all got to be quick. Um, how can you know your gift? Some things you can do. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. It's the first thing he says, right? I mean, that's basic. I know that was a little disappointing because I didn't tell you to take a test or go to this website or something, right? He said, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Two, know that you have a gift, probably many gifts in different levels. Pray for wisdom and examine your desires. A lot of times God puts the desire in your heart that you want to serve in a certain area because you have that gift. Sometimes it's not, or sometimes you can be misdirected in it. Start serving and serve with everything you've got. Put your all into serving in any area. Serve and see how God works out the development of your gifts. And then ask for confirmation. Go to the people who know you the best. Go to the people that you know have wisdom spiritually. And ask them, what are my gifts? Or maybe, what isn't my gift? And if somebody comes to you like that, be honest. You don't want to tell someone, oh, yeah, I think you're a great, you have the gift of teaching. Oh, yeah, it's great, it's wonderful. Yeah, because you don't want to put them down. Because then they go somewhere and kind of make a fool of themselves because they didn't have the gift. You don't want to put someone in that position. But tell someone they have the gift of mercy because they're nice to you because they happen to like you. And then they go somewhere else and that gift of mercy isn't there. And they're not as effective as they would be if they were serving where they should be. So those are the five things. Present yourself a living sacrifice. Know that you have a gift. Pray for wisdom and examine your desires. Start serving and put your all into it and seek confirmation. And I believe as we do that, we will see this church transformed. As we all put our gifts into action and we all start serving and I'm grateful for those who do serve. Make sure that you are serving in the right areas and that you are serving with everything you've got. Because ultimately your service is for God. And you're doing this as, because you're motivated by the mercies of God. This is your response. This is your logical, reasonable, rational response to the mercies of God. Let's pray. Our great God. We are so thankful to you for your mercies. We thank you, God, for your word, because from it, we know how to respond to your benefits. We know how to respond to the question that the psalmist posed. We know, God, what you desire from us, and we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased with our efforts, with our service, that you would guide us to know how to serve you, Lord, that we would be in your will because our minds are being renewed and we're being transformed. I pray, God, that you would get glory out of our lives. 
And you would help us to think rightly about our gifts and the gifts of others and be encouragements to the body. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.